to the Drew Busney Show on WRUC 89.7, live from Schenectady, New York at Union College. And now, I am happy to say, on all your major podcast stations, starting tomorrow, let's get to the headlines. In Patriots news, Matthew Slater has announced his retirement after 16 years. And when hearing this, it brought up the debate in my head. Now, should a lifelong special teamer, and to give him credit, a lifelong captain of the New England Patriots, should he go to Canton, Ohio, and be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Is he worthy to don the golden jacket? Now, the questions I was asking myself is, if this is the case, and he does don the golden jacket, Does that put him on the same level as the likes of Joe Montana? Tom Brady eventually? Because you look at the positions those play and the most famous of the people in the Football Hall of Fame. They're quarterbacks, linebackers, wide receivers. And one day you're skimming through all the players in the Hall of Fame and you go from those positions to a player who's only ever played on kick returns and punt returns and kickoffs and punt-offs or punts or whatever you call them. I mean, to me, that does not make sense. If you're going to put Tom Brady in the Hall of Fame, why are you putting Matthew Slater in the Hall of Fame? And I think that where the problem comes from is I think they are not strict enough in how they pick who they're going to induct into the Hall of Fame. Because it's my personal preference that the Hall of Fame should be really, really hard to get into. Now, I don't know the number off my top of my head, but football has been the thing for over 100 years. So let's say there's a couple thousand people in the Hall of Fame. Don't know if that's right. We're just going to go with that. Let's say a couple thousand people over 100 years, maybe even more. Because every day you see people are getting inducted. And it seems like every player gets inducted to the Hall of Fame. All they have to do is make it to the playoffs or win a Super Bowl. I wish it was 30, 50. And to get to the Hall of Fame, you had to do something really spectacular. Whether that's winning multiple Super Bowls, multiple MVPs, both. I am a personal believer that the Hall of Fame should be really slackful and they need to be harsh. And so what if you hurt someone's feelings? So with that, and with that ideology I have, I am a firm believer that although he was a great leader in Foxborough and he poured his blood, sweat, and tears into the team, Matthew Slater should not go to the Hall of Fame because to be frank, all he ever did was run down the field. That was his whole job. And not to discredit him. He was really good at running down the field. But that was his job. When the ball was hiked, he ran down the field and tried to tackle him. 
And to be frank, I don't really know how many times he did. This year, I don't really remember seeing him at all. And yes, he's old, but... If you're able to run, that gets you into the Hall of Fame. Maybe the Patriots Hall of Fame, sure. Because he was a great leader, and he was an icon in Foxborough. But to get past that, into Canton, Ohio, the National Football Hall of Fame, seems a little ridiculous to me. Great. So I'm just going to train my whole life. And all I want to do is I'm going to run down 80 yards of the field. Like four or five times a game. And if I do that for 16 years, I get a golden jacket and I go to the Hall of Fame. That's the precedent I think they're setting. And I'm not saying he's the only one that, not, that should not be in the Hall of Fame. I think there are countless others who they were far too lenient on. So my wish, if a genie came out of a bottle, is to... Be more strict. Set some harsher rules for who they induct and they do not induct. I've seen reports that he's probably on his way to the National Football Hall of Fame and great for him. I personally don't think he deserves it and that's nothing gets his character. It's merely just his position because if you look at it, he barely made the team as a rookie. Great, great story. Cool. He barely made the team as a rookie. But he was a failed wide receiver. He failed at the position he was supposed to play. And so instead of making him run routes and catch touchdowns and do the tough jobs on the football field, they said, Mr. Slater, all you're going to do is run down the field. You're going to run down the field 80 yards on a punt off or a kickoff, and you're going to tackle the guy in the, with the ball. That's what you're going to do. If you do that for 16 years... You're going to make it to the Hall of Fame. I mean, really? That's all it takes? It's kind of ridiculous. And I'm not discrediting the guy. I've said that because I, I don't want to come across as being a jerk to him. He has a great personality. He's a great character. He's a mensch. That's off the field and in the locker room. But in between the long white lines and the head zones... He's just a sprinter. So let him go into the Patriots Hall of Fame. I would be pretty upset if he got into the National Football Hall of Fame, even as a Patriots fan. I mean, the integrity of the game, I think, is lost. With every football player they keep inducting that, frankly, does not deserve it, the integrity of it, the value of being a Hall of Famer diminishes. Hey, Tom Brady, you're a Hall of Famer. So is Matthew Slater. They are not equal whatsoever. Tom Brady's light years better, and yet they both have this same award. For the last time, the National Football Hall of Fame should induct players worthy of it. And it shouldn't be thousands, or whatever the number is. It should be 50. It should be less than 100. Maybe less than 50. I mean, you only have a couple good players a decade. When you look at this decade, the only people I would really think of putting into the Hall of Fame right now off the top of my head is Tom Brady and now Patrick Mahomes, even though probably you guys are mad about that. That's two in the past 20-odd years. I want to put Ben Roethlisberger in it. I want to put Peyton Manning in it. Not even Drew Brees. I would put two people over the last 20 years in. 
In other Patriots news, they have officially released Lawrence Guy and Adrian Phillips. That's giving them a head start on free agency for those two, but also saves the Patriots $6 million. They are up to, I believe, $90 million in money to spend, which I'm happy about. Who knows if they're actually going to spend all that money? Who knows if the Crafts are just going to pocket it and go buy a yacht or another house or another team? But the fact that they have this money and it's available to Mayo and Elliot Wolf and Alex Van Pell and Demarcus Covington, I think is great. And now with this money, again, it turns to who are we going to sign and if who we sign is going to determine who we draft. Because if we go out and we sign Kirk Cousins or Baker Mayfield, then odds are we either draft Marvin Harrison Jr. or trade back. That's the reality of it. Because after hearing more reports this week, our quarterbacks have to be gone. Reports coming out that Bailey Zappi, these past couple years, have been forced to watch film in the wide receiver room. Because per source, the quarterback room is too toxic with Mac Jones. And with that, and the original thought I had of Mac Jones being a career backup, because I thought he could accomplish that, I don't think being a career backup what happened to him in Foxborough. Because he's too selfish, self, self-absorbed. He only cares about his legacy and what he does on the field that I think even as a backup, he's always going to try and undermine the starter and be a tattletale, be that kid who weasels his way into the starting job in an unmoral, not really nice way. So even if he could be a career backup, it can't be in Foxborough because he's going to make that, that, that room toxic again. And you can't have that to a young quarterback who he just drafted and veteran quarterbacks that come into Foxborough don't deserve to have to listen to Mac. I can only imagine walking into that room, sitting down, the quarterback's coach is coming to talk to you. And all of a sudden you hear what I picture like a Mickey Mouse sounding like. And it's Mac Jones talking. I would get up and quit the team on the spot if I had to sit next to him. Even watching him in interviews after he loses, so deflated, acting like he's Bill Belichick, like he's won something, giving him the right to act all pissed off and moody and monotone. And then I just imagine him all energetic, like he's the happiest man alive. I just picture him like Mickey Mouse. I could never do it. He has to go. <laughs> they have to get him out of there. It's, a, it's so rude to the new quarterbacks they bring in to have to be near him. No offense to Mac, but he's like the, the popular girl from Mean Girls almost. Who wants to spend time with him? He's going to make him wear pink on Wednesdays. Like, jeez. Get him out of there. In other news, former offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien, who we thought was going to be the new offensive coordinator at Ohio State, has taken the job as head coach at Boston College. Absolutely wonderful. Not good enough things to say about this move. I thought Jeff Halfley or whatever the name was was a dud. Terrible recruiter, terrible game manager, was never going to have BC football amount to anything beyond an unranked team in middle of the pack in the ACC. 
with Bill O'Brien, who's made his name at Penn State, taking over in one of the worst situations in college football history, comes back to the college atmosphere as a head coach and has a chance to do what he did in Penn State and rebuild a failing Boston College football team. And then you look at it, the fact that his family and his childhood is centered all around Boston, and it's the perfect move. The absolute perfect move. Not much else to say about it other than I'm extremely happy. I wish him great things. I hope they become ranked in the near future within the next two years. And congratulations to Bill O'Brien. As you get a little bit into our show, I just want to remind you that our fourth segment of our sports stories is on its way at the end of the show. That'll be about in 15, 20 minutes, so stay tuned for that. And again, we are live from Schenectady, New York on WRUC 89.7. And you can listen to this recording by tomorrow morning on all your podcast stations, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Shifting away from the NFL, we are getting into the NBA. And this past weekend was the All-Star Game in Indianapolis. And I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. What a wasted time to watch. You gather the best players in the world to play a 60-minute game, and no one acts like they care. And the media talks and talks and talks but the new faces of the NBA wants the likes of Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Steph Curry retire. And they always mention one guy, Luka Doncic. And great, he's a great player, but the fact that media players, fans voted for him, voted for him to go to Indianapolis, and he's chucking up full-court shots, walking up and down the court. Luka, Kobe always said it. People are paying for you to play. They are paying to watch you play. They might have saved their entire inheritance or their entire bank account to come watch you play. And especially in a special environment like the All-Star Game, where not only can they see you, but they can see you interact with the 20 other best players in the league. And you put in zero effort. Not only is it a disgrace to those fans, but it's a disgrace to the game. It's a disgrace to the league who wants you to succeed and views you as the face of the future. And so it told not just me, but any basketball fan from casual watchers to reporters that frankly the All-Star game should be no more. And it should be no more because of Luka Doncic and the new stars of the league. So thanks, Luca. Thanks for all you did. You ruined All-Star Weekend. That's on you. Jalen Brown was out there trying. It was evident that he cared. He even participated in the dunk contest to try and make it more eventful and more watchable. Because anyone would want to watch an All-Star, even if it was Jalen Brown, participate in a skills challenge. And Jalen Brown made meaningful dunks. He got the Dominique Williams doppelganger out there. He wore his Terrence Clark Brewster jersey. He did one with Jason Tatum. He put an effort. Even if they were not the best dunks, they were meaningful dunks. And that still matters. But then you look at the likes of Anthony Edwards and Scotty Bonds 
Barnes, also the new face of the league, who participated in the skills challenge and are shooting left-handed and shooting behind, behind their head, turning backwards, back, back towards the basket and they're shooting. So, so, Edwards, Barnes, and Doncic, shame on you. You are supposed to run this league for the next 10, 15 years, and you do not give anything to have them succeed. Shame on you. The All-Star Game brings in so much revenue for the league, and for the past two years... It has had the two worst viewer ratings it has ever had. The crowds have been dead. It has been terrible. And so because of these new faces in the league, the All-Star Game should stop. It should go to 1v1, King of the Court, 2v2. We can no longer play 5v5 games. Because no one cares anymore. They tried to have the quote-unquote Kobe rules where each quarter was individual and at the end you had to get to the target score of after, so 24 points after whatever you had for three quarters of your total score. They tried that. It worked for a couple years. There was a couple great games and then yet again, the future stars don't try. And I've been watching clips of the 2002, 2001, the early 2000s All-Star games and there's defense everywhere. There's people getting each other's faces. It's great games, super entertaining. It's the 20 best players in the league playing, and now you look at it and it's a complete and utter joke. What a shame. Nothing else to say then. All-Star Weekend in the NBA has turned into a joke. I mean, we already saw the NFL Pro Bowl transition away from tackling because that was becoming a joke. So I guess this is the end of all All-Star games. I mean, the NHL went to the 3v3 round-robin tournament, and that was great. The NFL did it. It got a little better. So now I think it's the NBA's turn. Moving on, and as much as I do not want to talk to them, talk about them, sorry. We got to talk about the Red Sox. Even with my livid frustration towards the Fenway Sports Group and their failure to make the Red Sox a contender, we got to talk about them because they play their first spring training game on Friday. That game is on Nesson at 1 o'clock. They're going to be playing the Northeastern Huskies as they always do. And just yesterday, it was announced that Liam Hendricks signed a two-year deal. But guess what? He's not going to be ready till July. We signed a player to be ready in the summer. How great. What a great move by Craig Breslow. Sam Kennedy... Good job. You're running an excellent team here. You should totally keep your job. It's not like everyone in the world wants you fired. But in addition to the car, the signing of Liam Hendricks and the reports coming out that the Red Sox offered Tristan Casas a new contract, he rejected it, obviously, because who wants to pay for the Red Sox? Because he's supposed to be the future of the team and he did not get an enticing offer. And so that brings the question with these two Contracts, the one that was signed, the one that was not. What exactly is enticing about coming to the Red Sox? Because if you have any sort of intelligence, you look at that team and you see they're not going to make it into the playoffs, not even being in contention for the playoffs. They are a dead last team. 
So good for Tristan Casas to not sign a deal. I don't know why Liam Hendricks or Lucas Giolato would sign a deal. Because I always thought players are in it to win championships. So if you want to win championships, why on earth would you come to the Red Sox? The Red Sox are nowhere near close to winning a championship. So it baffles me why they came. Maybe it's the money. Maybe this is the most money they got. And that's the world we turned into. Where players chase money instead of world championships. I would chase world championships. I would get paid $1 to win a world series. So you want to sit there and be and say Drew Busney, world series champion. is amazing. Now all these players are going to say Drew Busney, $1 billion. If I was a celebrity, I'd rather have championships to prove it rather than a billion dollars. Yes, a billion dollars is nice. Don't get me wrong. But you you work hard for championships. I always thought that was the goal of professional sports players. And I guess now it's money. Which is stupid. But yet again... Why are the Red Sox offering the most money? I mean, they don't even spend money. So the fact that the Red Sox maybe outbid all the other teams means that the players they're signing are frankly not very good. Because if the Red Sox are outbidding other teams, it means no other teams that spend money that are good want them. So we got bums. We got a pitcher who lets up 40 home runs. We got a pitcher not ready till the summer. Good job, Fenway Sports Group. Another blockbuster offseason. Now let's turn our attention to the coach. Alex Cora, free agent this summer. And for him, I don't know why I would stick around the Red Sox after this year. As a coach, you want the ownership to put the best team in front of you. And the ownership is not doing that for Alex Cora. So, when you look at free agents, and you look at the likes of, let's go with David Postnock last year. Before he signed his contract extension, he was playing out of his mind, on target for a 60-goal season. And that only drove up his stock and how much money the Bruins would pay him. And so you look at Alex Cora, and that should be the same idea. You can't take this year off if you're Alex Cora. You have to take this terrible team and try to amount something, something other than last place. Because that shows other teams that you still have it in you to coach and be successful. And so he's driving his free agent stock up. So when coaches get fired at the end of the year, they look at Alex Cora and he gets a payday. And he gets to go to a team that is in contention and doesn't have to suffer being the Red Sox manager anymore. That's the approach he has to take. So as much as it seems he's frustrated in the media when you listen to him and not wanting to comment on the offseason woes, which, matter of fact, Devers did today and said he was ashamed of the offseason they've had. Alex Cora can't do that. He needs to put his best foot forward and manage the best he can and work with what he has. Because if he can do that, he'll make himself a payday next year, wherever it is in the league. Because we all know the Red Sox aren't going to pay him. We all know that. Before we get to our sports stories, there is a new segment on the Drew Busney show. If you, have, if you ever have any questions, 
just email the Drew Busney Show at gmail.com. That is the Drew Busney Show at gmail.com. Busney, B U S N Y, Drew, D R E W, with any questions. And we have got, got, got a question today. The question wanted me to talk about the state of the Chicago White Sox and why they're not spending money in suck. And how they have no pitching and very little infielders and outfielders. And to answer this question, I think it's the same situation as the Red Sox. I think teams that don't spend money and think they're in a long rebuild and promise their fans that they're going to spend money, it's just frustrating. And they're not going to amount to anything beyond last place. They're going to probably have the first or second pick. And believe it or not, if you want to win, you have to spend money. I'm not saying you have to pay people an excessive amount of money, but unlike other teams, the Red Sox and White Sox don't even attempt to spend money. They don't even attempt to sign players. They have low payrolls, some of the lowest in the league, because in the offseason, they don't really put in competitive bids. I'm not saying they have to outbid other teams by hundreds of million dollars, but they at least have to get into contention to sign free agents, and report after report says they're way off the mark, whether that's years or money. And so all they have to do is get in the conversation and try and make it a little enticing, because if I'm choosing between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Boston Red Sox, if it's the same exact terms of the deal. What? Four years, 120 million? I would choose the Red Sox, not only for Fenway Park, but the history there. And so, if both the Red Sox and White Sox can level the playing field on the offseason by getting in to the amounts that people want, getting into the conversation of, as an option free agents would go to, their futures could look better than they are right now. But right now, when Teams are bidding. The White Sox and Red Sox are repeatedly off the mark with what they're going to offer. And that's the root of the problem. Right now, they're both in this holding pattern of drafting and development. And that's not fun. As we reach the end of our show today, we are going to get into our sports stories. So let's get into it. Focusing on the fight between Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. Now, this fight was billed as Tyson is back, and it was a professional boxing max, match to take place at the Tokyo Dome on February 11th, 1990. Now, going into the Tyson is back fight, Mike Tyson was undefeated and undisputed heavyweight champion of the world and grossly popular at this time. He held not only the WBC title, but the WBA and the IBF title. Now, Tyson did have controversies going on this time, such as his allegedly abusive relationship with Robert Robin Givens, his battle between longtime manager Bill Caton and promoter Dan King, and his departure from his longtime trader Kevin Rooney. Mike Tyson was still as dominant as ever in the ring. He scored a 93-second knockout against Carl the Truth Williams in his previous fight before Buster Douglas. 
Now, most consider this fight for Tyson to be a warm-up bout before meeting with the undefeated number one heavyweight contender in Evander Holyfield. He was at the fight to maybe scout. It's only speculation, but Tyson was viewed as such a dominant champion that he was often considered the number one fighter in the world, pound for pound, a rarity for heavyweights. Now, on the other hand, Buster Douglas was ranked the number seven heavyweight contender by Ring Magazine. He had mixed mixed success in his professional career. His previous fight was against Tony Tucker in 1987, in which he was TKO'd in the 10th round. Now, 1987, three years before the scheduled fight in 1990. But in six consecutive... Sorry. Six consecutive wins since the Tucker fight, including victories over former world champion Trevor Burbeck and future world champion Oliver McHale, it allowed him to fight Tyson. In the time leading up to the fight, Douglas faced several personal setbacks, including the death of his mother and the mother of his son had a severe kidney ailment and had contracted the flu on the day before the fight. Now into the fight, the beginning of it, it was apparent that Douglas was not afraid. Early on, Douglas was more agile than Tyson and outlanded Tyson exchanges. Douglas finished the second round with a snappy undercut to Tyson's chin. Tyson remained dominant in the middle rounds. Although Tyson managed to land a few of his signature uppercuts, Douglas definitely had the advantage. Soon, Tyson's left eye began to swell. From Douglas's right jabs. It prevented him from seeing the opponent's punch as well. Even Tyson's cornerman was caught unprepared. They had not brought any of the ice packs or medical supplies that were standard for a fight and standard to fix his eye problems because they were so confident Tyson would easily beat Douglas. Now to fix this, they filled a rubber glove with ice water and held it to Tyson's eye between rounds. At one point, Aaron Snowell, that's Tyson's primary cornerman, caught the chain from the identification badge hanging from the neck between the ice glove and Tyson's eye. As Snowell moved, Tyson winched in pain as the chain dragged from one side of his injured eye to another. Confusion and panic grew in his corner with his eye. Within the last 10 seconds of the eighth round, Tyson backed against the ropes at the time, landed a big uppercut that sent Douglas to the canvas. Although the knockdown timekeeper began when Douglas, Douglas's backward backside touched the ring surface, the referee was said to have started his count behind by two beats. Douglas rose as the referee signaled nine, which was supposed to be 11, but the bell ended the round. In obvious annoyance of his laps, Douglas pounded his left fist on the mat. Tyson's promoter Don Quinn would later argue the validity of the referee's referee's count. In the ninth round, Tyson came out aggressively to try and end the fight and save his title, hoping that Douglas was still hurt from that eighth round knockdown. But Douglas was able to fight Tyson's attack and was able to close Tyson's eye completely. In the tenth round, As Tyson reeled back, Douglas followed with four punches to the head, knocking Tyson down for the first time in his career. 
in a famous scene, Tyson fumbled for his mouthpiece on the canvas before sticking one end in his mouth with the other hanging out. The champion and Mike Tyson attempted to make it back to his feet, but referee Octavio Myron counted him out. Buster Douglas thus became the new undisputed heavyweight champion, engineering one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. Now, what was supposed to be the story of an ages went downhill. That is because Tyson's camp, led by Don King, immediately protested the result, claiming that Douglas had been given a long count by, re- by the referee. The WBA and WBC initially agreed and suspended recognition of Douglas as a champion, although the IBF immediately accepted that the result was valid. After a public outcry and demands from boxing commissions around the world to acknowledge Douglas as a champion, the protest was withdrawn and Douglas was re-recognized four days after the fight. However, in an HBO studio interview, the following week, Douglas stated the protest and post-fight confusion ruined the best time of his life. Thank you all for listening again. You're listening live on WRUC 89.7. And if you're listening on all the podcast platforms going up by Wednesday morning, just want to thank you all for listening. Have a great day. Stay warm in the winter if you are in the cold. If you're in the warm, get outside. Go to the beach. Have a great time. Have a good rest of your week. Thank you very much.